Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. This episode of the Modern Therapist Survival Guide is brought to you by the Therapy Reimagined Conference. What? October 18th and 19th in Universal City, California. Hang out with all of the cool modern therapists. Yes, we are sponsoring our own podcast because we are so excited about the conference. And if you listen at the end of the episode, we'll get you a promo code for a nice discount. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapist. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I am Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and wherever you listen to your podcast, if you wouldn't mind stopping by, leaving us a rating and a review, it definitely helps us out. And we really Thank you for listening to us and being a part of our movement, our team, and that's really just my way of having a really bad segue into talking about interdisciplinary teams. Today we're talking about the education gaps in really helping therapists conceptualize how to be a part of an interdisciplinary team how a lot of us learn about working as part of these teams as trial by fire sort of things and really looking at interdisciplinary work as being a best practice of behavioral and mental health care in and of itself, kind of regardless of whatever evidence-based practice or theories that you might be working from, but just how we go about this in treatment teams really does show the best effect for client outcomes. I think what's really interesting about treatment teaming is that you mentioned that there's these educational gaps for for folks, and I'm sure that's true, but I don't know that I noticed them because before I became a therapist, I was part of a treatment team. I was working as a childcare worker and a case manager in community mental health. And so for me, part of the weekly meetings were the psychiatrist and the social worker or the therapist and the recreation manager and all the people who would be actively working on these cases. And so to me, my introduction to clinical work was all these different perspectives, all these people who were actively working with a client. And so I think I probably framed my education in that way. But I did recognize once I became a therapist that there were people who just did not know how to do it, that they were kind of working in their own lane, they weren't talking to people, or they might not know how to actually access those teams. So I think this is a really important topic, but I just find it very interesting because I came into the field thinking that we needed other people to help us with our cases. I think to a certain degree, we all do. And I think that it's when we look at what therapist education is kind of as its own isolated part of this, this silo unto itself, mm-hmm. that 
I don't remember in my education ever really being challenged to think of or conceptualize through what kind of uh, interdisciplinary team would be necessary. And I think that that's because a lot of the theory classes that we take focus on the therapist is the one who's creating the opportunity for change. And it's kind of this really myopic view of we can acknowledge that there might be other services that are necessary. We might need to refer out to a psychiatrist, but there's never the, well, how does that teamwork happen? We're just sending this client from one silo to another silo, and there's not really a connection there. And it took until I've been teaching now for a couple of years and at master's level, and it took until this recent semester for me to recognize that this is something that's missing in 21st century therapist education because we recognize the, this role, but we're not actually teaching students to start thinking in this way early in their career. And this can go into even as simple as something in practicum class presentations as far as how does an interdisciplinary team help to serve this client and getting therapists to really start conceptualizing that they're not the whole answer for their clients, that this is something that we should be working on from the very beginning of our career as far as saying, here's what I can provide and here's how I would communicate that to other treatment professionals in the best interest of this client. I think that the most common treatment team, like what you're talking about, is the therapist and the psychiatrist. And I think that relationship is pretty complex, given that oftentimes psychiatrists have less time for treatment teaming. And so to me, one of the complexities that I think is really missing is identifying when you are a member of the treatment team and when you're leading the treatment team. Because I think with medical necessity and insurance companies wanting to make sure that diagnoses line up and those kinds of things, my first introduction into that aspect of it was you need to go talk to the psychiatrist to make sure that your diagnoses match. And I think that's an aspect of it, but it, it also doesn't create a collaboration necessarily unless you really push that because oftentimes psychiatrists will say, well, it's this because this is the medication that I want to use. And it doesn't go deeper into the clinical aspects because I think psychiatrists and therapists who are working within those systems have some limitations on what they can do if they don't use the right diagnosis or they don't use the right words for their interventions. And so it can feel very stifling, I think, for clinicians and, and psychiatrists to have a more, have a deeper conversation about what things might be or the case conceptualization. So I think to me, one of the first lessons that I would really want to teach folks is being able to understand the difference between diagnosing for medical necessity and having a richer case conceptualization. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a medical doctor. And so it can be very easy for me to point out that there are things that need to be changed about psychiatric training as well. Because mm -hmm. one of the issues that you're speaking to here is about the ego of each of the treatment team members. Yes. And, and I think that this is something where across my career, I have worked with some wonderful psychiatrists who have really come in and they're wonderful to the point where they're the ones that I continue to try and have on my treatment teams with my clients. But I've also worked with some very 
large egoed psycho <laughs> psychiatrist. <laughs> that was very diplomatic. And, you know, part of working with them is because it doesn't feel like we have contributions that are respected in both directions as part of the treatment team. And that is something that does seem to me to be missing as far as if this is actually in the best interest of clients, we have to be able to get past that ego place. And yeah. I know that within all of the mental health licenses and practices that there, there does seem to be this hierarchy that we're all taught to follow that the MDs are at the top and they know yeah. everything. And the psychologists are supposed to, you know, have this status and master's level licenses are supposed to be below. And that doesn't work in interdisciplinary teams because if we each have an expertise that can bring in a different perspective, then that's really what needs to be focused on as far as the best interest of the client's outcome there. I agree for the most part, but I think each, each opinion should be valued, but I think there needs to be at least some hierarchy in order to have a cohesive treatment plan. If everybody has kind of equal say and there's nobody that's kind of making that final decision, obviously a treatment team that has wildly very, you know, varying diagnoses or wildly varying treatment plans that don't seem to coalesce, that's a problem. But having someone who is actually the leader of that team, I think is important because that then goes to, okay, who's going to be the person that makes those final decisions and make sure that everything comes together? Who's going to hold people accountable to the different aspects? Who's going to be the one that's going to be the central hub of communication? So I do think that that has to happen. I think the hierarchy well, and, may not- And not to, not to jump in, but dang, this is right up your alley. This is leadership. And that, yeah. that's regardless of which license or which aspect of the treatment team that you're on. That's just being a good leader. For sure. And I think most of the hierarchy would suggest that the psychiatrist is the person who should be the leader or the psychologist. I actually disagree with that. I think it should be the treatment provider who is most situated to do that. So it most often actually should be the therapist unless there is a another provider or a school or something like that where there's someone else that can be the hub of information and can and help with the decision making. But the reason I don't think it should be a psychiatrist or like a, an assessment psychologist, if it's a treating psychologist, I can see that. But those folks are providing services that are, you know, if it's, if it's a meds-only psychiatrist and a, an assessment-only psychologist, I think those folks are contributing information and they need to be on board. But I think the person who's meeting weekly or the person who's meeting daily, depending on the type of treatment you're doing, I think those folks really need to be the leaders. And that means for therapists, we have to get past this awe of medical doctors and psychologists as, as master's level therapists. So I think it's just identifying who makes sense to be the leader of the team and really finding a way to get opt-in and, and perspective from everybody so that they can actually create a cohesive treatment plan that each person is playing a role in. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate upfront. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. 
From there, Thrizer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thrizer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thrizer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. There's a huge practicality aspect to that too, because oftentimes those psychiatrists, those assessment psychologists are going to be more expensive time-wise to incorporate into team meetings or whatever communications that everybody's contributing. And if you're in an agency setting, I can totally see a a bean counter somewhere saying that this is not (laughs) the best utilization of this professional's time. But when the evidence does suggest that having all of these different viewpoints from all of these different fields is what's best for the outcomes of the client, we do need those perspectives. And I fully agree with you that the further removed that somebody is from the day-to-day aspects, less likely that they should be in that final decision-making role. Mm -hmm. But this kind of brings to the, the next idea that I have about this is that within our licenses, within each of our own fields, whether it's the treatment provider, whether it's the nurse or the medication, and we have all of these problems of arriving at how a client's diagnosis gets there and what the best treatment should be theoretically and what we do provide. And we spend so much time arguing about this within each of our own fields that that often precludes us from actually getting to moving that into a team with people from different fields and being able to bring all of these different perspectives together and sift through the information that each of those team members are able to provide and to be able to then bring that together because we get scared of this scope of practice and scope of knowledge sort of thing to venture into these debates with, well, why is that medication the best for this client? And being able to understand that when you are a master's level or a psychologist talking to a psychiatrist of really getting into the understanding of the thinking and how that might play out. I see what you're saying. I think for me, I've not had that experience. Like I said, I kind of grew up as a mental health provider having these interactions. And I think it's seeing how each person's role plays out. So I think the leader role is one that's like, Hey, let's make sure we're all coming together. I'm going to take personal responsibility to make sure that each treatment team member is contacted, that kind of stuff potentially I'm the person that's going to make a final decision on the official diagnosis or whatever. But I think that role is a little bit different. I think when we're looking at the function of the treatment team, when I interact with a psychiatrist, I just had a conversation with a psychiatrist recently. It's what are you seeing? What am I seeing? And how can I be of assistance to you and your treatment? And so part of it's also the planning of what, you know, when I'm seeing my client on a weekly basis, are there side effects that I should be helping to, you know, redirect my client back to you? Are there treatment goals or treatment planning that you're doing that you need to make sure that the, the, that the client is, is making these appointments. I'm 
I'm seeing that I have more access to the client and what does the psychiatrist want me to know so I can play an active role in supporting the psychiatrist treatment plan. I think there can be those debates and I think there can be like, wait a second, I'm not seeing this diagnosis. And, and in, you know, in that re- in a recent conversation, I was talking about like, what, is, what are the next steps and, and what are you seeing as potential if this, you know, current medical medication, you know, makeup is not working. And when it was like going to a much more serious medication, I was like, well, I'm, I really don't want to get there. So let's talk about what the other options are and how I can, you know, like how I can focus my treatment, how you can focus your treatment. So we don't get to this really extensive medication profile. And so I think to me, it's coming from a place of more than like an informed consumer. I think it's, it's coming from a place of a professional who doesn't have like, oh, you should use this medication instead of that medication, because that's clearly out of scope. It could be you know, what were the thoughts about why did you choose that medication? What were the other options? That's an informed consumer with more information. I think it's it's being able to just understand how to, to navigate that conversation without, I guess, pissing off the psychiatrist. <laughs> because I think in truth, a collaborative relationship helps with any team and saying like, hey, I think this is a stupid medication. You should do something else is never a good idea. So I think coming from a place of curiosity and from kind of this almost informed consumer idea can be a, a good place to start when you're talking to someone that has a different scope than you. I think that this also plays in a couple of different types of settings too, because Katie and I are both in the private practice world now where these interdisciplinary teams are usually a series of phone calls. It's yeah. really hard to schedule talking to a psychiatrist and a dietitian and a school counselor and whoever else yeah. might be involved in a in a client's life and sometimes actually involving the client and their families in this too so scheduling things can just be logistical nightmares when it comes to this so a there's that difficulty it's also hugely expensive to try to pay all of those providers for that one hour right <laughs> So that's B. Uh, C is in those settings that do have multiple services, agency settings, uh, DMH settings that have a, a psychiatrist and a nurse practitioner that a lot of times from my understanding of this is that there isn't interdisciplinary team meetings that happen where these people all come together and say, okay, for client AB, this is what's best and we're going to conceptualize through this all together, that it still becomes kind of this fragmented sort of communication pattern. And there might be interclinic messages about what's happening or checking in the, in the file notes for what these updates are. So it ends up becoming more of a co-location of services as opposed to an actual true interdisciplinary approach. I I think that's probably true in a lot of situations, but because of that, there have been some programmatic changes. Most notably, there's wraparound. The psychiatrist isn't necessarily in those meetings, but they have at least monthly meetings with the whole treatment team in the client's home. And so that's all of the all of the wraparound team, which is a facilitator who is interacting with social workers and that kind of stuff. So it's it's kind of a, a spoken wheel kind of thing where the the center spoke or the center you know kind of hub in there has you know, people who are then communicating with these other people. So there's a, a, 
a wraparound coordinator that's talking to a social worker or a probation officer or both, kind of those social services aspects. There's a therapist who's also talking to the psychiatrist. There's a child and family specialist who's also talking to the school and, and tutors and, you know, anything else that's going in. And they're all meeting at least once a month with the family and any relevant people in the person's life. So that could be a baseball coach. It could be a religious uh, official. It could be whoever is going to to be coming in and actually working with the client on the day-to-day life. And so this is, this is one of the things I loved about community mental health is this idea of bringing this whole team, including the family and having active treatment teaming with goals and objectives on a monthly basis on who's going to do what, what is that process going to look like and really holding so many people accountable to being a part of this active plan. And so it was, it was actually kind of manualized into the treatment. This is required to get this funding. You have to do these types of things. And so for me, treatment teaming in community mental health is actually so much more, much easier than it is in private practice. I mean, we're in agreement on that, but I think it actually does happen in a lot of cases in community mental health because there are team meetings where there's case conceptualization and you have, you work on cases with a lot of the same people. And so you sit, you might even have supervision together or those kinds of things where you can talk about the cases. I think for me, being in private practice, thinking about all the different people who I might want to talk about, talk to for my clients and trying, bringing them into the same room is almost impossible unless you've got a kid with, you know, an, an IEP meeting and, and the school is helping to bring together these folks. But I think for, for adults and other folks, it can be really difficult. And, and so it's, it becomes about this communication, but, but I don't know that I totally agree that community mental health becomes co-location of services because I think there are incentives to do that treatment teaming. And, you know, I'm not saying that all sites are like this, but, oh, that, of course. you know, that there, there is good places that are out there. And, you know, kind of speaking to this is that in, in private practice, you know, I think that there's such a, a fear of the the legalese and the confidentiality that a lot of the, the therapists end up in trying to navigate through what the communications to the other treatment t- team members might be. If a client's saying, you know, I'm, I'm really not liking the psychiatrist that I'm seeing, I think I'm going to fire them and go find another psychiatrist. Yeah. Then there's kind of this question of, well, as the therapist, do I tell the psychiatrist, like, hey, you're going to get fired from this case. <laughs> but, no. but that becomes really, you know, a, a core piece of this whole team type setting in, especially in the private practice world of if that's something where, you know, we, we do support clients having a consumer choice into who their treatment providers are. But if that kind of stuff gets in the way of the treatment team being able to communicate with each other, then that also is a barrier to client success. Explain that. If you and I are serving different roles for a client, if I'm, if I'm a therapist and you're a coach for them and okay. the, client, the client tells me, hey, I'm, I, I'm thinking of switching to a different coach. I, I, I don't like Katie for whatever reason. She doesn't find dad jokes funny enough, whatever it might be. <laughs> If I don't tell you that, then that's something that could be a further barrier to the work that you get done with a client. It could be a barrier into other communications once you potentially do get fired from that client of, hey, man, why didn't you tell me? So 
it's things that can disrupt kind of that communication within a treatment team, especially a non-organized one that would happen in a wraparound program that yeah. really could affect the ability for the client to have us as a team be able to say, hey, Katie, there's certain things that this client's not responding to you on. I think that those are things that you need to address so that way they can reach mm. their goals faster. So I agree to a certain extent. I guess I'll, I'm conditionally agreeing to most of the things that you're saying today. But Sounds like our entire relationship. <laughs> <laughs> but so for, for folks who are newer in their career, I think if you're going to do treatment teaming, you want to make sure that you have a pretty clear release of information to talk to anybody on the team, even if it's within an agency, oftentimes there's ways that that happens. But, but so if you have a release, so assuming you have a release to talk to me, you want to make sure that the client's very clear on what you're going to talk to me about. I think with this idea that the, the client thinks, well, Katie's not the exact right coach for any anymore. I don't like that she's doing this, that, or the other thing. I think it's actually in the client's best interest, I guess, depending on the client, for you to be able to talk to that client and say, is this something that you think that would be helpful to talk to Katie about? Here's what I'm seeing about how it might work and empowering the client to talk to me about it versus you kind of taking on this almost parent role of let me go tell Katie what she needs to fix. So then the client just feels better. So I think in truth, I don't feel like that's actually a limitation except for clients that can't have those conversations. I think for me, oftentimes there's this piece of, sending my clients back to the other providers and figuring out how do I navigate having some information that the other provider doesn't have. But in truth, with the, the release forms, oftentimes it gives me that permission. And if it's something where I feel like the client is telling me something in confidence, I may say, hey, this is something that might be important for Katie to know, for example. Is it okay if in my next consultation with that person that I let them know and see if this is something that could be fixed for you? Because then that's another conversation. I think there's and, and as we were talking earlier about the makeup of the team and who should be the leader of the treatment team, there's actually a whole movement where the client is the leader of the treatment right. team. And so I think there's a part of me that thinks that that's actually something that could be very helpful. And I think me having a consultation with a psychiatrist behind the scenes is probably more realistic logistically, but the client, I tell the client exactly what's happened there. And, and how that, that's playing out so that the client's completely aware. I don't think that there needs to be this kind of behind the scenes. Now, by diagnosis, that may be different. And certainly for children, it might be different. But I think having that transparency can be hugely empowering to a client. And so I think, especially like for adult clients, having them be more central can be very helpful. And so that, that, that breakdown between communication, I don't think is a real problem. I fully agree. And I want to bring up a couple of resources here as far as some ideologies behind how to best do this. And I'm going to bring in uh, one of my favorite psychologists. Your favorite psychologist? Is, is this Scott Miller? No, it's not. I... <laughs> This is Dr. Michael Hoge. He is a professor of psychiatry at Yale. Um, always amazing to me when it's a PhD leading MDs, but go him. There we but, go. And is this something that we're going to be able to share in the show notes? Yes. Okay, cool. All right. And I can read it. 
Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. So Michael Hoge is one of the founding members of a group called the Annapolis Coalition. And this started right around 2001, 2002, and really started to address some major things in therapist and mental health care delivery workforce issues. And just kind of a lot of the motives and a lot of the research backing that I do, that Katie does, uh, is driven out of research done by this group. In kind of the wake of the Annapolis Coalition, there was the Ohio State University Collaborative for Interdisciplinary Behavioral Healthcare Education, and this was established in 2008. They came up with six assumptions for therapist interdisciplinary care treatment, and it's really amazing that it took that long to get to this kind of delivery. But as as I'm going to hit these six guiding assumptions, it's really kind of interesting how this has been out for at least the entirety of my licensure career. And it took me having to dive into this kind of stuff for my own interests in order to find this. This just shouldn't become like best practices right away. So the first assumption that they come up with is that knowledge obtained in graduate experience is likely to affect one's future practice and relationships. In other words, what you're taught in grad school kind of pushes you off into a certain direction and you just keep kind of floating in that direction unless there's some kind of outside force that pushes you there. That seems fair. Which is also super scary and something that we complain about all the time is that we don't really adopt a whole lot of new research into our practices or our lives the further removed from grad school we are. Yeah. That's not the point of today's episode. Nope. Second assumption (laughs) is that students and faculty should learn together, that we shouldn't be separating out education into different arenas, that we should be learning the stuff together so that way more seasoned learners are being able to share and ask questions from their experience and not keeping kind of novice learners siloed off to themselves. And one of the things that I hear from a lot of my students is that, yeah, we do a lot of role plays, but it's on each other who are learning this stuff alongside me. So there's not kind of that wisdom sort of Mm -hmm. education that's happening. Well, I want to actually dig into that for just a second, because to me, it seems like, I don't know, with faculty learning with the students, is that suggesting that they are continuing to grow their knowledge base and sharing that journey with their students? Is that what that means? Yes. Okay. That it kind of sets this lifelong learning pattern that we're never done learning. And I think yeah, that, I think that's actually a really good model then. Yes. Uh, assumption number three is that a systems perspective serves as an overarching theoretical framework. We talked about that a little bit earlier when we were talking mm-hmm. about you know all these different viewpoints that go into it. Number four, and this goes into some of our advocacy stuff, is that we should be working with students and novice learners about how to influence other systems, whether it's other treatment team members, whether it's 
advocacy end of agency change or governmental legislative type changes, that we should have this be a bigger core piece of education. Okay. Number five is that behavioral health care problems should not be looked at as only occurring in traditional behavioral health care. So, yeah, duh. Right? Like, <laughs> this is not groundbreaking stuff, but apparently it really is. And that number six and the final one is that the experience transforms information into knowledge. That by approaching this as teams, that this is where we're going to actually start thinking about it in this way and not just paying mind to this is kind of a conceptual thing. That, you know, if we're exposed to a one semester credit of, you know, here's psychotropic medications, and that's the only time that you're ever taught about medications, then that really does further contribute to this. But if we start to think about working in teams, then we will start to practice in working in teams. Well, and if I'm understanding this correctly, it means that as a member of a team, you're going to learn a lot more than if you practice solo. Correct. And meeting a team where you consistently collaborate with a psychiatrist, a medical doctor, maybe a, a lawyer, you know, that you have people who you consistently team with to help support your clients. And in doing that, you learn more about their fields and broaden your knowledge. Right. And instead, what we get is, well, medication's not your license. Don't do anything. Don't even think about medication when you're next to a client because <laughs> that might be outside your scope of practice. So there's a scope of practicing, but there's also this kind of either or, you know, it's either talk therapy or medication. I mean, there's people that, that, that are almost like planting their flags and saying this is the right choice. And I think when we think about it as a richer experience of all of these people can come together and really help someone exponentially, I think that's helpful. But the other thing I've been thinking about as you've been talking about treatment teams, because I think there are folks who will look at how much time it takes to try to treatment team in private practice or feel overwhelmed by it in community mental health or, or other types of, of agencies or, or companies. I think in an agency or a company, it's, it's learning, it's all the stuff you're talking about and it's developing a support system because oftentimes those cases are really intense and not being the only person responsible for the outcome is hugely relieving. But the point that I wanna make to all of those folks who are private practitioners who are like, oh my gosh, that's way too hard. Uh, why would I have to call somebody? Why do I have to go to a meeting, blah, blah, blah. I think the biggest piece that is the most mercenary thing that I can tell you is if you start working actively in treatment teams, you've created a referral network. And these people will refer clients to you over and over again. They'll know that you're actually taking the steps to be able to work really well with your clients. They'll like to work with you and they will refer all of their clients to you. So I think when we look at treatment teaming, it is the highest form of practice because you're getting more perspectives, you're having a better case conceptualization, you're getting all of the, the these other folks who have other specialties that can really augment your treatment, and you're getting a whole basically sales force marketing you because they're your referral network. So we mentioned quite a few resources in today's episode. Our little elves who work on the show behind the scenes. We'll put those <laughs> into our show notes. Are you calling us elves? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
you can find those on our website, mtsgpodcast.com, and come and be part of our team in person at the Therapy Reimagined 2019 conference. And that's going to be October 18th and 19th here in Universal City, California. It's a neighborhood of Los Angeles. We uh, have graciously got a lot of support from Simple Practice. They're making sure that everything's got all the CEU stuff, CE stuff for people of at least NBCC camps. <laughs> master's level licenses. Master's level licenses. We're gonna bring we're gonna bring the fun that we bring. We're gonna bring the the business building stuff that we bring. We're gonna bring the clinical knowledge stuff that we bring in person for CEUs. It's gonna be a lot of fun. So come and join us. And until next time, our team here is Kurt Whithelm and Katie Vernoy. So just a reminder, we did sponsor this episode. For you, because as Therapy Reimagined 2019 is approaching, we want to make sure that you can join us. And so we've given you a promo code MTSG50, all caps, MTSG50, so that you can get $50 off your full conference admission. We'd love to have you there. Come join us out in the Los Angeles area for two days of CEs of all of the great content that we bring you on this podcast, but in person with some really cool people. We've been really fortunate to meet a lot of great speakers through this entire process, and we want to help you get all of your education. We have a great partnership with Simple Practice. They're providing CEs for wherever you may be in the U.S. and maybe even beyond. So come (laughs) hang out with us, come learn with us, come be a modern therapist with us. And once again, that's MTSG50 to get $50 off your full conference ticket. See you soon. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months.